Welcome to Metal Matters, a Gimme Radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill, and I'll be leading you on this adventure. We'll be getting into deep discussions about classic records, profiles on up-and-coming bands, and interviews with your favorite artists. You can check out new episodes every week, so be sure to subscribe and never miss out. Hey guys, welcome back. Before we get started, I'd like to personally thank everyone who has been listening. It means a lot to me. I have a lot of fun doing these things, but without you guys, there's no audience. If you dig the show, please feel free to share it. Tell your friends, leave a review on iTunes. The reviews and star ratings definitely uh, make a big difference. For this week's episode, we have Al Dawson, the U.S. label manager for Earache Records, the label that helped define grindcore, death metal, and extreme music. Brought us Bolt Thrower, Napalm Death, Carcass, Anal Cunt, uh, Godflesh, the list goes on. I've known Al for like two decades. He's a cool guy, and we had a great time talking about the old days, as well as the new territory that the label seems to be heading into. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to John Brown's Smokehouse, where Al and I had lunch afterward. If you're in Long Island City at any point, hit that place up. It's some of the best barbecue in the tri-state area. I feel like a long time goes by between you and I actually running into each other. Right, right. But, I mean, I used to come and see pretty much every show that uh, Anodyne played back in the day. And obviously I've seen Tombs a bunch as well. But we actually met through uh, my old publicist, Curran Reynolds, if you remember. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, he brought you to the office maybe 2000. Were you living up in Boston then or something? No, I was at, in 2000 I was down here. Right. Um, that was you know, shortly after moving to New York from Boston. Right, okay. I knew there was some Boston connection yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Nice. Um, good stuff, man. But anyway, let's get into this. What do you need to know? What's going on? Well, first of all, Al, what I really would like to know is where the hell you've come from, man. Okay. Are you, you're not English, right? No, no, not English at all. You don't know this story? I do. Okay. Maybe the people out there right, are, don't know where, let's what do your it. origins right. are. So I am Australian. Um, my hometown is a place called Perth. Uh, P-E-R-T-H, on the west coast of Australia. Uh, we actually have the uh, the reputation as being the most isolated capital city in the world. It's quicker to fly to Asia, five hours, versus six hours to fly to Sydney or Melbourne. Um, and in between, if you drive it, uh, unlike America, you know, the lower 48, where uh, you, know, you can hit a town every couple of hours, uh, there's nothing for at least two days drive, like, you know, like uh, Mad Max, desert sort of stuff. Um, so it's pretty isolated, but uh, I guess uh, after World War II, they, Australia had a big uh, uh, push to repopulate. So they had a thing with the British, since it's a British colony, where if your dad was like a, an engineer or a plumber, or so, you know, some sort of tradesman, and they had five pounds, I don't even know what five pounds in, in the 50s would be, you know, 50 bucks or something like that, uh, they would ship you out to Australia and you could start a new life. So it was a big British, English community, Irish community out there. Um, so we were exposed. We're pretty much well in touch with what was going on in England as far as music, uh, even in the 70s when I was a kid and whatnot. But I knew that I wanted to do something in music, so uh, I knew I had to get out of there because basically this, at that point, at least, there was probably only two jobs in the music industry. And people who had those jobs were going to keep them for life. They weren't ever going to let go. Um, 
so I knew I had to leave. Uh, my favorite bands were all English or American, so I figured I could go to America, find a girl, and do that green card thing like the the movie in the 80s, um, or uh, go to England. My mother's Scottish. I had the right to live there, buy land, vote, whatever. So to me, that seemed like more of a, uh, a sensible option. So I went over in 86, and basically I stayed with all of my tape trading uh, pen friends around the country, uh, checked out all the different scenes like uh, East End of London, Bristol, Manchester, uh, Liverpool, uh, Nottingham. And I found I actually preferred Nottingham the most out of all of the cities. Uh, I was friends with the guys in Chaos UK and Concrete Socks. And uh, I was staying with the drummer of Concrete Socks at the time, him and his girlfriend. And they said you could stay a week, but they have people from uh, Italy the week beforehand and people from Japan the week after or whatever. But if you want to stay longer... You can stay with our buddy, a guy called Digby. Um, so I ended up staying with him for about four or five weeks. And I made up my mind I'm going to go back to Australia, take every shit job I could, save up money, and move to England. At that time, uh, Dig was unemployed and he had like a little uh, mail order, punk rock mail order. I think he had advertised on like Flipside and Mexican Rock and Roll. Uh, you know, he'd buy some seven inches and some vinyl and that and uh, sell them on to people. I think that was, might have been called Earache Records at the time, but uh, he was telling me even in 86 he was going to start a record label. And I'm like, wow, that's, you know, EMI is a record label. That's pretty ambitious. And the government at the time had a, a thing called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme where if you'd been unemployed for over a year and had a business plan, they would fund your uh, business plan for uh, one year but basically, it's the same amount of money as you get on unemployment, um, but they just call it you know, Enterprise Allowance Scheme. And of course, a lot of people probably tried that and did nothing with it, but uh, Dig used that money to set up his label. Third release was Napalm Death, and uh, the rest is history, you know? What, what were the first two releases? Uh, Spastic Blur, and Jesus, number two, I want to say maybe a Heresy release, perhaps? Okay, okay. But yeah, the third one was Napalm Death, and if you think about it, too... With Napalm Death, I mean, obviously the side A and side B of Scum are two different lineups, but all of the the members of Napalm Death as the band imploded over the years, uh, you know, Lee Dorian went on to form Cathedral, uh, Justin went on to form uh, Godflesh, Bill uh, Steer, the other guitarist, went on to, for, uh, perform, uh, to form uh, Carcass. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, literally the, the label, you know, like, uh, wouldn't implosion? I don't know if that's the right word, but... Uh, Literally, the label sprung from that whole uh, band, you know. Yeah, definitely. And uh, actually, real quick about Australia, did you? You know, there's a, there are some Australian bands that I quite love. Sure. Did you ever get into any like the Birthday Party or you know Beast the, of Bourbon or any of that kind of uh, stuff? Uh, I mean, Saints. I like the Saints, Saints back in the day. Um, there is a bunch of uh, super underground bands that never really sort of. Uh, went anywhere like a punk band from adelaide called perdition uh one from melbourne called civil dissident uh civil dissident were actually on here's another tie to to dig and earache uh civil dissident were on a compilation that Pusshead, the artist who does you know did all the metallica artwork misfits etc uh he had a compilation in 84 85 called cleanser bacteria and basically he was covering uh, punk bands that were putting more metal influences into their music. For example, COC. Because before um, yeah, before the whole... Uh, actually, I guess 
Yeah, before the whole crossover thing, the punk scene was one thing and the metal scene was another thing. And if the if the people, the fans met, they would fight or whatever. It wouldn't be like uh, now with, I mean, crossover really happened like 86 or so. Uh, what is it? COC, DRI going more metal. You had guys like the Chromags and that, and the Gnostic Front growing their hair Some longer. Suicidal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. But that whole scene before that, it was two different worlds. Yeah, definitely. And, um, uh, yeah, so Civil Dissent were on a compilation called Cleanse the Bacteria that uh, that uh, Pasad did. And on the thanks list, because I was helping him put it together and so was Digby, both Digby and myself were on the thanks list for this record. And that was like two whole years before we ever met in person. So we're already kind of uh, moving in the same circle, so to speak, you know? Yeah, the crossover. We uh, we actually did an episode, a whole the crossover okay. episode, talking about that style and that sort of melding of the two worlds. Right. And uh, yeah, that's something that a lot of younger kids uh, don't really appreciate, I think, is that they were diametrically opposite. Yeah. Because even when I was a kid, I started out, the first things I got into were, you know, hard rock and heavy metal. Right. You know, Priest. The, the, gate, the gateway, yeah. Yeah, you know, Zeppelin, Sabbath, and then I discovered punk through the Ramones and all right. that, and then I was a punk. Right. And you can only be one or the other until like 85 86 exactly and even then it was like this reluctant sort of testing yeah. of the waters yeah. if i remember correctly but that's why if you look at the second wave of black metal um you know i'm talking the norwegian bands but they were a lot of them were inspired by uh venom and venom was like we're metal but they had a very very punk diy uh attitude and sound to them especially the early records or whatever like they were raw they were fast you know what i'm saying yeah venom hellhammer yep. celtic frost yep. all that kind of stuff Definitely. Um, now back to Napalm Death, uh, because it, in so many ways, like that band uh, is sort of the, you know, the genesis of like a whole sound of two different yeah. styles, really, if you think about it, grindcore and death metal. Yeah, but if you look at uh, a lot of the early sort of, whether it's posters or, um, you know, gig flies, whatever, a lot of it might go like uh, death ripping thrash or speed metal. Like no one had really locked in. Like what exactly uh, is this sound? Do you know what I'm saying? Like there was a lot of different terms bandied about before it was settled on grindcore or whatever. You know. So how did you actually become part of the organization? Now, I mean, uh, you know, we got Dig Digby Pearson. Well, I was uh, I was in Australia and I had like pen friends all around the world and whatnot. And um, I moved back to England. I actually stayed with Dig. He had a different apartment when I moved back there in 89. And he uh, kept saying, come work with me because he wanted people that had a, uh, a global point of view or a global understanding. Um, as weird as it sounds, because, uh, you know, obviously both of us have traveled across the world a lot. But I met people when I was living in Nottingham who had never been to London. And here's me as an Australian, like, it's two hours down the road, let's go. Like, nah, nah, I'm not into that big city stuff. I'm not, I'm just going to stay there. You know, they weren't even curious to go down there and check it out and decide, you know what, I hate this place. I'm never going to come back. But they've never been. So he really wanted people. And the thing is, too, is I guess with industry, if you're industry in America, you move to L.A., uh, New York, probably now some of the Bay Area as well. But basically in england if you're industry you have to be in london so he was he didn't want to be in london he felt it it, it uh, set him apart from the rest of the labels and that by being out of london um and uh, you know it's worked out very well for himself but uh so he was obviously looking for people who had like a global uh, viewpoint as opposed to just a, a, a local viewpoint you know yeah 
So like in the early days, uh, you know, was just kind of operating out of his flat, or did you guys eventually get he uh, space? he was doing it out of his bedroom? And when I moved over in '89, they had a, an office probably half the size of this, and there was like four of us in there. Then he took a space down the hall, um, and then it just went from there. They just they just bought a building, I think, last year. But uh, for the longest time, he stayed in the same uh, building. But he had he had like pretty much taken over half the building at that point, you know. When did you end up coming over to the states? I first started coming here. I want to say either eighty nine or ninety, and um, you know, like the Lower East Side and stuff used to be sketchy as hell. Times Square still had before. It's like was it pre nineteen ninety five when Giuliani came in? It was still sleazy. Still that seventies midnight cowboy feel to it type of thing uh which i i thought was great um and uh i started coming there and i probably clocked up 50 trips between uh heathrow and jfk all through the 90s just coming over and overseeing uh the operation or meeting managers or we did a couple of years with uh columbia records so sitting in with meetings with them and whatnot and uh in 2000 he offered he said why don't you know what do you feel about moving to new york i'm like fuck yeah man and as an australian um, at that point, at least, uh, the chance to legally come and work and live in the U.S. was like, you know, once in a, a lifetime opportunity that I had to jump at, you know. Um, uh, I believe now, I mean, we had to pay a lot of money in legal fees to show that I was creating jobs for Americans as opposed to taking jobs from Americans and all that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, as soon as I had the chance, I got my green card and whatnot. But uh, I believe now, I guess after the the uh, Iraqi war or whatever it is, um, Australia pledged a bunch of troops, and now you find a lot more Australians in New York than ever in the past. Um, but uh, yeah, it's still quite a hard thing to get in as an Australian into the U.S. as you know to work. You know, I've always been fascinated with Australia. Uh, I've never been there myself. Oh, you got to do it, man. Yeah, I'm trying to get down there at some point. Um, I mean, just the culturally because there's so few people there compared well, to the united let states let me let me put it in perspective for you uh the landmass is pretty much the same size as the lower 48 of the u.s like no alaska no hawaii uh and you have more people living in california than the entire country yeah do you know what i'm saying that's what i mean like yeah. per capita there's like you know it's like a, a wide open space man for the most part well, when i was a kid growing up i mean i talked earlier on about part of the need to move and get into the action or whatever uh even a band like the cult or dead kennedys they would come and they would tour like the gold coast sydney melbourne and then uh fuck off back to asia or new zealand or they'd continue you know, to bring all of their gear to the other side of the country for however many people they projected turning up they felt that it wasn't uh, it wasn't economically viable. Actually, even Michael Jackson's heyday, whatever that was, not Thriller, Bad, whatever, around that era, uh, he never came to Perth because it's like I guess with his production, you know, like it's too, it was too much. But um, yes, yeah, so when I was living in England, uh, Morbid Angel, Bolt Throw, a bunch of others ended up playing Perth, and I was like, how how do people make this work? Like promoters, or whatever. I was actually shocked because I didn't believe they could. They could do it, but they figured, I guess, flights got cheaper. And I'm, I'm sure some of the promoters, uh, I don't know whether they lost their shirts on those tours, but the fact is international like death metal bands and that were, were getting down there was pretty impressive to me. Because even like the logistics of touring there between the cities. Uh, it's flying. You can't yeah, fucking you can't, drive it. No. Yeah, there's no, no. van no. or trailer type you of scenario. You fly every fucking show. 
damn yeah just and the real the reality of that sort of hustle to me seems like pretty insane man well you know i mean you know eric rutan um pretty well uh he was shocked when he found out it was from perfectly he's like why would you leave they had a they had an ongoing joke uh for the band you know when you tour you you start having in inside jokes or yeah whatever. definitely it was like that's a hot chick yeah but not like in perf like this is a great cup of coffee yeah but not like in perf everything perf was like this you know shangrel out of them or whatever which is pretty funny i mean it's a great place but you're just so fucking far removed from the rest of the world and, and the other thing too is like you know the before i became more worldly shall we say I was like, oh, Australia, they're like English people, you know? Right. But they're completely different from English people, though, really. Well, I mean, it's like saying Canadian people are like <laughs> American people or whatever. They kind of are, they kind of aren't. But uh, um, I believe, I mean, it's, it's, I would actually say now we're probably more like Americans than like English. Uh, you know, like when I was a kid, there was maybe like two KFCs in, in the entire town. We didn't get McDonald's until 86. And now, the last time I went back, it was like every second corner, there's another KFC, there's another McDonald's and all that sort of shit. Actually, all, uh, in all seriousness, um, Australians surpassed Americans uh, for, per head of population, you know, in ratio or whatever, as the fattest people in the Western world really? now. Oh, yeah. Wow. So okay. All that, all that junk food's paying off. So that's, that's definitely like undermining... The, uh, the stock of the Australians. Right, man. right. Yeah, because, I mean, Aussies yeah. used to grow up because uh, it's, you know, so it's, it's like 300 days of uh, uh, summer type of thing. Uh, they used to excel at sports. Uh, even though it's a small country, they would always do pretty well in, like, running and, and swimming and shit in the Olympics and that. And I guess now, though, that everyone's just like, yeah, fuck, it's easy just to watch TV and ah. uh, eat fast food or whatever, yeah. you know. Because I know just... um. Wherever, wherever there's some crazy shit going on, like whatever kind of rough, rough house sort of experiences you're into, there's always an Australian there. Right, that's true. You know, if you yeah. go to like some local MMA fight, right. there's an Australian guy on the card. Right. You know, you're in some like, uh, you go train to like a new jiu-jitsu school, there's an Australian guy training there on the mats, or like, there's always like, they're always in the mix in these like super yeah. badass like sort of things. Well, you know, uh, um, uh, Growing up there, there was a lot of street fights, a lot of bar fights, shit like that. And, uh, I, you know, I've been all around the world and I still, to this day, find it more like nerve wracking uh, in Australian bars and clubs than anywhere else in the world I've been. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I don't know where that comes from, the, the criminal mentality, because it used to be a penal colony or whatever. But uh, I, mean, I started going to bars as a kid since age 14 and I never got ID'd or carded. Um, I think it was like 35 in, in New York when the first time I got asked for ID. Uh, but when I went back after 23 years, like, ID, sir, ID. I'm like, well, what the hell is this? Obviously, I mean, if you look at me, I don't look like underage. No, definitely But not. what it is is they take your ID and they photograph you uh, almost like going through customs because if you get in a bar fight, they go, right, that's the guy there. We oh, got wow. him on thing. That's why they want your ID. So it's not for any sort of concern about underage drinking. It's to do with bar violence. Wow. So it's pretty crazy. I mean, there's even been cases like friends back home will send me things like, you know, some supermodel smashing a, a beer glass over another chick's face. Or, you know, it's like even the girls are in <laughs> to the bar violence there, man. So back to uh, Eric. Yeah. So over, over the years, I mean, there's been how, – well, how the label's been in 30 31 years now i think and we've we've done over 660 releases 
Do you have any favorite releases that, you know, span in the entire... That's a tough one. It's like saying, do you have any favorite kids or whatever? Yeah. But uh, uh, Woods 5, Gray Skies and Electric Light, uh, that's definitely one of my favorites. Uh, I like a lot of the Cauldron releases as well. Um, First Municipal Waste album's a good one. Um, uh, obviously, uh, the first four Morbid Angel as well. Classic um, records. Yeah. All four of those. I mean, really a lot of those, uh, you could call them evergreen records, but Carcass Heartwork, uh, I mean, it's, it's weird for me. It's, it, I'd compare it to like, um, if you work at Disneyland behind the scenes, fixing the animatronics every day, it's a different experience than when you're a kid and your mom and dad take you there type of thing. Cause you're seeing behind the scenes and all the nitty gritty, um, but and also too, by the time most albums come out, like Heartwork come out, we've been listening it to every day for three months, so you kind of burn out on it. But I still recognize what an amazing uh, piece of music that is, you know. Yeah. So there's been a couple of different eras in the uh, story of sure. Earache Records. I mean, you're starting out extreme, the, the most extreme music there is. You know, there's yeah. like the early Napalm stuff, Carcass. Um, you know the aforementioned morbid angel you guys changed things up with, with godflesh industrial yep. records yep. um and now they're now you guys seem to get more into like <laughs> rock and roll kind of stuff yeah so digby basically was a drummer um before doing the label so he always wanted extreme stuff but whenever you say you had a new like morbid angel uh, demo or carcass demo or whatever the first thing he would his ears would gravitate towards is is the drums the rhythm and then over time, he became more like listen to that guitar riff, and you know he was more catching the the uh, the you know the guitars. But it took him a long time to get into uh, singers or you know vocalists as an actual uh, musical uh, um, entity in itself. And uh, it was almost like a organic progression because we went from doing like say the fresh stuff to the new wave of uh, um, heavy metal kind of thing like. We had a compilation called uh, Heavy Metal Killers, but it was bands almost like trying to find the new Iron Maiden, you know, like singers who had range and voice or the new Judas Priest type of thing. We had a band called White Wizard oh, yeah, that did that. stuff yeah. like that. So band. all of a sudden for him, it's like, shit, yeah, vocals. Because before that, vocals were almost an afterthought. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And uh, um, so then he was into vocalists. That became his, uh, his fascination. And from that, we discovered a band called Rival Sons, uh, I guess he found them on YouTube. They're just like playing to 40 people in, you know, clubs in Long Beach or whatever, you know, back rooms or bars and whatnot. And um, we picked them up and five years later they did, you know, the, the final uh, Black Sabbath World Tour. 100 shows worldwide opening for Sabbath. So uh, we're pretty happy about that. So, yeah, so vocalist became his uh, fascination from that point. But, you know, the whole label is, uh, is Diggs' vision on the whole. So it's whatever he's excited about. If you think about it too, the late mid to late nineties we did uh, extreme techno because he was fascinated by the um not so much drumming but computerized drumming, you know, which is you know, uh, drum beats. And people are like, Oh, you guys did techno? It's like, No, no, we did extreme techno. Yeah. We did the the most it's called Gabba. I, I didn't even know that. G A B B E R, but it's basically uh, working class industrial kids from Holland. You know, they pop like ten ecstasy pills and you know dance all night. But it was you know do 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 like that type of you know two hundred and ten beats per minute, not sort of happy loved up 
tech new music, you know? You know, a lot of that's, there's a lot of stuff from Eng- from Europe in general that fall, like like grime music and stuff like that, that's got like a real dark kind of vibe to it. Right. But, so I should, ga- Gabber, G-A-B-B-E-R? Yeah. Okay. But, but check this out. Um, we'd ended up doing, it was actually a New York label, Industrial Fucking Strength, and we ended up doing a compilation of theirs in Europe. Uh, and, you know, I mean, to me, I'm a guitar guy. So I was like, well, this is kind of weird, but it's a new challenge or whatever. And uh, we ended up doing really well with the compilation. Dig and I flew to the U.S., did a full presentation for our U.S. office, which it's, you know, it's, it's his office. It's not like a, a, a licensing partner or whatever. Did a full presentation, like here's how the marketing, here's the TV ads, here's like the point of purchase display systems, whatever. And the guy running the label at the time said, that's all very well and good, but this is America. This will never fly here. I'm not going to put it out. He's like, what? He goes, this is it's my company. You'll do as you're damn told. He's like, yeah, but this, kids in America don't want this, whatever. So he goes, no, just follow what we said and do it. So he does, does it. End of the year calls up. He goes, can we have a follow-up? This is the best-selling record of the year. Oh, so, wow. So even though it was it was uh, not really – I mean, because now – what's it called? EDM now. Yeah, That's EDM. huge. It's like the biggest form of music in America now probably. But even uh, then, there was pockets, I guess, like Houston, Chicago, San Francisco, New York. There was definitely scenes, but it was the biggest-selling record we had that year. And this was a guy who's saying it'll never catch on in America. Damn. You know? So, so yeah, so he was into that uh, in the late 90s or whatever. Um, so he's always, you know, he's never been afraid to uh, experiment and just go with what he's passionate about. And, the, you know, you got you got to admire that, you know. So what are some of the more recent stuff you guys are putting out? What we, I mean, we picked up a band this year from Colorado called Green Druid, which is like a stoner metal band type of thing. Um, I'm pretty excited about them. One of the things that's interesting is... Uh, um, being from Colorado and called Green Druid, there's obviously a connection to the whole marijuana sure. business. And you know, the way America is changing right now is I think the entire West Coast, it's legal, like... Uh, uh, like recreational. Yeah, yeah legal, like you yeah. can go to get like, uh, you know, the liquor store type of thing. Uh, Colorado it is. Uh, I know it actually was on the front page of the Daily News Today talking about legalizing weed in New York or whatever. Um, so that whole, it's almost like, I guess, the 1920s or the 30s when Prohibition ended type of thing. So there's some interesting ties with promoting that band in the, uh, I mean, actually the High Times magazine, the Weed magazine, they've always covered uh, uh, rock music as well. So that to me is pretty interesting working with those guys. And we just started doing some trap uh, as well, which is really cool. And I mean, for those of you who don't know, trap is like uh, a form of hip hop. But uh, a lot of these kids have metal influences. Like we were talking earlier on about the uh, the uh, the punk versus uh, Hesha metal mentality of the 80s. But there's a whole generation of kids now who grew up discovering music, say through uh, video games. And you know, if you think of the Tony Hawk's uh, PlayStation, the, uh, the the skateboarding game, it would have a hip hop track followed by a punk rock track. And kids are just like, I like this and I like this. Oh wow! So it's almost like a second wave crossover kind yeah. of thing. That's I mean, I, we've cool. been going to a lot of hip hop shows, and the kids will be wearing like long sleeve uh, uh, death metal t shirts. There's mosh pits going on. Um, actually, uh, there's an, a group called City Morgue who just played Vitus two weeks back. I took this girl to the show, and before they came on, there was a DJ. Guess what he was playing? He was playing. He started off with TSOL, 
uh, True Sounds of Liberty. He did uh, The Germs. Uh, he was playing, um, uh, God, what else? Suicidal Tendencies. And she just looked at me and goes, this is not what I expected. Because these kids were all dressed in like the hip hop, you know, New York hip hop gear. And they're slamming to the fucking germs in St. Vitus. Wow. And no one's like, man, I'm going to sit this one out. This isn't hip hop. I'm going to, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're just down to yeah, get into it. Yeah. It's cool. So that's what we're kind of, uh, we're putting a toe in the water with that right now, you know? I mean, we'll still be doing our death metal. We'll still be doing our fucking doom. You know, we'll still be doing our classic rock. But, you know, we can do whatever we want. That's, isn't that the purpose of being an independent record label? You know, you do what you want sort of thing, you know? Yeah, I didn't know about it. You know, I think someone mentioned City Morgue to me last night, right. actually. Probably might have been me. Yeah, me. Uh, you know what it was? <laughs> you were talking about it last yeah. night. Yeah, yeah. I have to check I'll that out. I'll show you the videos after we're done yeah, recording totally. this, man. Love to check you it gotta, out. It's, you know what it is? It's like, uh, actually, Gordon, we're talking about Gordon from Season of the Mist earlier on. It's like 10.30 on Tuesday night. He, he texts me. He goes, Al, send me the links to those videos. i got this new kid here who thinks he's into hip-hop. And I'm like, boom. 10 minutes later, he texts me back. He goes, you just destroyed him. You've just blown his fucking mind. You know, like, nice. because, because it's like, it's so... It's like the first time you heard like Reincore, you're like, like what just has happened? It's wow. so insane, so extreme that uh, it has that, a similar effect, you know? Hmm. And like I said, I know a bunch of these kids and, you know, they're into, uh, um, you know, they're into a lot of metal music. In fact, one of the guys in the city morgue, he goes, I don't go to hip hop shows, I only go to metal shows, you know? Wow, that's pretty, pretty far out. It's great, you know? So, you know, we're, we're sitting in this uh, record label office, we're talking about records, but... What what is your take on you know people talk about how the the physical media you know of of tactile music records CDs uh, that's like you know a dinosaur sort of vibe right. you know and now everything's streaming and online so what are your thoughts on that and how how has earache adjusted to this we I mean we one of the things they said earlier on is about uh, Dig just following his vision or whatever but uh, um, we were the second independent label in the England to go online in 1996. Mute Records was first. We were second. Uh, he knew the internet was going to be something back then. Um, if you think, too, about the 90s, it was Headbangers Ball. Um, we used to make at least one video for every album, and then Headbangers Ball went away, and there was no, other than a couple of cable shows, there was no real uh, national outlets for music videos anymore. I was like, why do we keep doing this? Because one day there'll be something that you can put the videos on. And sure enough, you know, here we are with YouTube and whatever yeah. else. Uh, and uh, so we've always sort of experimented and looked forward. I mean, we did a couple of releases uh, you know, in, in the, the dark days when uh, Napster was uh, in file sharing. We did a couple of releases like download for free. Just put your email address in and download the files. Like we'd rather you get them from us then from some you know, Russian file sharing site or whatever. We were the one of the first independents to have a direct deal with Apple for, for uh, iTunes back in the day, now Apple Music. Uh, and we're one of the first indie labels to partner up with Spotify as well. So we always embrace, we'll always embrace the changes. You can't be like, I mean, I met with Oliver from Century Media. Remember when they, they there's a time when Metal Blade and Century Media put all of their music off Spotify. I met with Oliver that same day that that news went live, and he's like, "Al, he goes, I know it's the future, but we just have to do this for now because we got a shitty deal. We need to renegotiate, whatever." But even at that point, he was resigned to this is what a lot of people want, you know. 
Um, it's good now that the the numbers people are actually seeing a decent return on uh, on stuff with with uh, Spotify and what have you. Um, but that said, you know, a lot of metal guys uh, they're passionate about their artists, and uh, people won't hesitate in buying like eight different color pressings vinyl or whatever yeah uh to be com- to be completists you know yeah i'm definitely on, in that camp myself yeah. i mean yeah. you know i enjoy uh i have a subscription to apple music yeah. and um i'm always on there discovering new bands too but if it's something i'm really into i always buy the vinyl oh yeah absolutely sure. I, was, I mean i got some releases at home where i have the cd the cassette i don't i don't don't even think i have a cassette player anymore but i'll buy the cassette just to have and i'll be streaming it as well or whatever you know so is that a viable like income stream these days? Is the uh, you know the the money you're well put it this way? Um, we have a rock band from England called Massive Wagons, and their Spotify. I mean, they've been slugging it out in the clubs for like five years or whatever, four years. Their Spotify streams this year was a million streams, which you know it's it's, it's respectable. There's an unsigned trap artist I'm talking to right now. So he's no record deal. I don't think he's ever done a gig. He's got five million uh, uh, streams, so you got to have some pretty big numbers to see a, a decent return. You can't have you know three hundred and forty listeners a month and go like shit, man. Why aren't I getting like those those big paychecks coming in? But there's definitely uh, unsigned people I know who are making like two three grand a month from their their Spotify. Damn. Yeah, hmm. but that's because those kids, a lot of them just live on their phones. Yeah, that's true. You know? you know, networking and all this other stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, earlier, before before we started this uh, talk, we were, we were talking about some, uh, you know, sensitivities and uh, you know, political meta- political, political sensitivities. Yeah. Now with uh, with this sort of emerging hip hop um, scene, you know, bands like City Morgue and yeah. whatnot. Do you see any of that, like any any kind of like sensitivities in that scene, as like we do in the metal scene? I've, I've seen a couple of. I'm not the most uh, world's best expert on hip hop, but I've seen a couple of uh, guys uh, calling out other guys for um, perpetuating you know, bad behavior or, or, like, say, black stereotypes, stuff like that. I've seen a few people do that, but I feel, um, I wouldn't say I feel that it's, uh, it's not so much of an issue, but at least I haven't seen people trying to, like, censor people for waving around guns or. Well, that, you know, that's a real threat, though, honestly. You know right. what I mean? If someone has, like, a weapon on it. Right, you know right. I mean? But, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, we, yeah. we could probably find 10 videos on Worldstar today with uh, you know, gold chains, bling, and, and guns, and all that type of thing. So I don't think it's as, it's as much of that type of thing. But, I mean, talking about the black metal scene and people trying to clean it up, it's... I don't know. It's like uh, it's trying to stand in a river and try and stop the, 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 the flow of water type of thing. I mean, the whole genre itself was based on violence and uh church burnings and stabbings and killings and all you know it's a violent scene or it was a violent scene so it seems weird that people want to try and clean it up you know do you think that it's because a lot of like newer kids don't know the history or i'm really i'm really not sure i mean i was i was doing this before you know the whole black metal scene exploded and stuff so I was there from you know day one. Um, I and but you know there are some kids who are pretty well uh, educated on the whole. You know, they can be nineteen or twenty, but they know the whole thing of shit that was going on in in ninety two or whatever in Norway and what, and what have you. So I really would. I don't really don't know. 
Uh, I'm excited actually to see that there's that Lords of Chaos film. That's, yeah, uh, I haven't seen it yet, out. but I've. Uh, I mean, I, I I don't know what it is about me, but I actually do like a lot of these Hollywood uh, interpretations of movies. Like, for example, the Germs film. Uh, I wasn't in the, uh, the 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 Hollywood scene in '77, '78, but I actually like that movie, and uh, I do note that the band, who obviously the real band, the Germs, who obviously were there, uh, like the kid, the actor who played Darby so much, they actually took him out on tour. So that's he must have got lot. he must have got something right to do so. So I like all that because a lot of people are like, oh man, it's so Hollywood, it's so lame. I'm like. I actually kind of like that sort of cornball interpretations and reimaginings or whatever that they do, you know. So I'm looking forward to seeing that for sure. Yeah, from what I heard, it's uh, it's it's a European-made film. What's well, so Jonas Ackland or whatever, who was what, the drummer of Baffery back in the day, wasn't he? Yeah, and and it has um, you know, the the Skarsgård brothers are in it. Those two gigantic uh, right, right, Swedish right. guys, and uh, it's it's uh, approaching it more like, um. Like there, there's been a couple of cool, like you know, pretty good, like Charles Manson, like docu picks yeah, out yeah. there. So yeah. it sort of has like this vibe of of uh, not to say a fictionalized accounting, but they're they're giving you like a stylized version of the truth, right? Yeah, you know, and there might be some embellishments for you know, yeah, just for entertainment I'm sure, value. I'm sure. And I'm just I'm I'm pretty intrigued by that because I mean you know they're not just taking the book and adapting the entire book; yeah. they're just taking the one drama with you know Varg and. And you're anonymous and all that. You know what's uh, funny? Uh, I do an Instagram story every day for uh, for the Eric Records, and uh, kids were asking me. Uh, it's actually just this week about um, violence between uh, the old guard, the death metal bands, and uh, the new guard, the black metal guys. And if you think of uh, his label, he was he was had he calling it anti anti mosh. Like it was almost like yeah. death metal's the old wave, where the new wave coming in. And they actually put out death threats on a bunch of uh, metal people. Uh, they told Entombed, if you turn up in Norway, we'll kill you. <laughs> and uh, um, I talked to the manager before. He's, what are you going to do? He's like, well, we're contracted to play the show. We're just going to turn up and play the show. So they play the show, they get back to Sweden. So how was it? He goes, yeah, they're all like 15 years old, they're five foot high and like about this, this fucking skinny sure. or whatever. So they just laughed or what have you. But um, a good friend of mine used to tour manage, uh, um, he did the Gods of Grind tour for us and a couple of other earache tours. He was actually tour managing Gorefest at the same time and Uranus would put a, uh, a, a death threat out on the singer from Gorefest. So they turned up at the show, and here's Euronymous uh, uh, with a baseball bat, you know, with nails sticking out of it. And he just, you know, he, he said he walked up to Euronymous and said, you know, the kid's like five foot tall. He goes, "Put that bat away or shove it up your ass." And he just ran off, and that was the end of it. So, you know, there was violence even from Euronymous back then. You know, did you? Are you a fan of horror films? I think you are. Yeah, of right? course, yeah, yeah, huge. Did huge. you see the new Halloween film? Uh, yes. All right. What are you? Th- what are your thoughts on that? You know what? I was. I saw the other day you wanted to ask me about that, and I was kind of like, how do I fucking answer it? Um, honestly, uh, I've seen all of the Halloween films over the years. I mean, yeah. even what was the one with LL Cool J? H2O, perhaps? H2O, yeah. yeah maybe I even saw one. that one, man. Sure. But it's like, uh, um, I mean, it's kind of, in a sense, what do they do? They, they've ignored a lot of the films that came after and all this sort of thing. I mean, it was it is what it is. I, I didn't hate it, but I didn't like, oh, my God, this is i got to own this on DVD, Blu-ray, you know everything either. Do you know what I'm saying? I'll probably get it on Blu-ray. At right. first, I changed my as time went by, my opinion about it changed a little bit. When I first saw it, and after immediately afterwards, I was just not into it. Right. I was like, man, 
I felt like they had a really cool opportunity to to kind of play around with the story and the character and do something cool with it, but they, they just kind of didn't really. You know? But but the, I think the the key issue on that one was you've got someone who uh, life was destroyed or changed uh, dramatically from you know the, a shocking instance of violence. You know, meaning uh, what's the, the Lori? Oh, yeah, Lori, yeah. And you know PTSD, and it's about her confronting, facing her fears. And dealing with the boogeyman that's terrified her a whole life—that was the main issue of the film. Um, I mean, obviously, you've seen the uh, the Rob Zombie ones as well. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of those either. The yeah, but it's like it's almost in the sense by giving the whole backstory to Michael, you take away a little of the uh, the the scariness of him or whatever, you know. Also, Rob Zombie. The thing is about Rob Zombie, I like the way he directs. Yeah, I don't like his writing though. Right. So right. His writing is very like it's like the same old rehashed like, you know, whiskey tango sort of vibe, yeah. you know, like with trailer park stuff. And I'm just like, dude, that's like 20 years like out out of date, really. Back in yeah. like the 90s, I remember like that was like this thing, you know, right. like trucker right. hats and all that. And uh, I, I I like the way his films look, but I what don't... is the one with his wife or girlfriend, whatever she is? Uh, she's a radio DJ. Lords of Salem. Yeah, I actually I actually find because it's. I mean, it's not exactly like the world's best horror film, but yeah. if you said pick one yeah. Rob Zombie film, I would actually pr- probably head more towards that now than any others, you know? Yeah, Lords of Salem. You know, I agree with you on that because I, I um, didn't really... Uh, I went in there with low expectations and, you know, I checked it out. I watched it. It was like me and like three other people in yeah. the theater. And and it was uh, it was very like... It was like his homage to like Dario Argento yeah. and like yeah. Giallo European yeah. films. And it was the one that I enjoyed the most out of anything I've seen by him. Right, you know, me too. I, I saw 31. Yeah. And once again, I think his directing is great. And then there was like this weird Q&A after that. And he sp- straight up was like, I wrote the script in an afternoon. And I was like, dude, can't you just, you know, yeah. give us a little bit of uh, you know, a little, little mystery here? Exactly. <laughs> Damn, man. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, but... But yeah, but the new Halloween, I, I changed my opinion about it a little bit more. I'm like, yeah, it was entertaining. It was cool. It's like maybe like I built it up too much to be right. something different. But I guess at the end of the day, I, I liked it. And I'll right. probably get the Blu-ray. Right. Let me ask those. you a question then. What about uh, any new zombie films that you rate at all? Uh, new like like zombie zombies? Yeah. Oh, geez, man. There's actually quite a few. There's a French movie called The Night Eats the World. Yep, seen that one. That's I really one. like yeah. that one. It's definitely more, it's not like a gore soaked you know yeah. it's like there's more impressionistic there's not a lot of dialogue in yep. it uh that one i think is really and he cool. has the drum kit set up in the apartment and all yeah. That. yeah yeah and he's like playing yeah. drums and he's listening to the tapes and everything. there's another french one um i forget the name but i want to say the horde perhaps uh where there's a drug cops are going into a tenement building yeah. to raid it and yep. the, the guys that they were about to bust they have to, to team up to uh fight the zombies that's another really good french zombie one yeah i dig that one man that was great there's also a French-Canadian film called Ravenous, which is uh, another sort of... I want to say I have that at home, but I, I'm drawing a blank. Have it's you, a good one, have man. Have you seen uh, Patient Zero? You, I, you know, that's on the very edge of my... like of my Yes, I, have, I want to see that. Okay. Do you recommend it? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Because it's, uh, it's a different... Uh, it's a whole different spin. Because it's like... It was so sad. I mean, because if you think about... I mean, at least when I was a kid... 
like seeing Dawn of the Dead 1978 was mind blowing. Like, yeah. Holy fucking shit. Totally. Like that was like the extreme end of horror. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and you know, we, we have basically a weekly, whether it's, uh, uh, the walking dead or the fear of the walking dead, it's basically a weekly zombie show every week. So anyone who comes out with a movie now where there's slow lumbering zombies and all that is like, you've got to have a, a fresh spin on it to, to make it interesting. Um, but patient zero is a good one. Uh, it's it's actually I think it's a British film, but they're making out that they're Americans. Okay. Like a lot of fake American accents and all this. That's a good one. Have you seen another British one called The Girl with All the Gifts? Yeah, that's a good. That's a great yeah. one. Yeah. But again, it's you know what I'm saying. It's, uh, I mean, I honestly think not too much actually happens in that film. The to ending, me, to me, good. to me, the best scene is when they go topside and the whole military base is getting overrun by the the, the zombified civilians. Yeah, it has like a. You know, a little slight nod to Day of the Day of the Dead. Yeah. You know, because it's the military yeah. underground thing. Then they're on top side. And the ending of that film, I thought, was yeah. pretty rad. Yeah. We won't, we won't spoil it for those who haven't seen it. But, again, it's a, it's a fresh spin on the whole zombie thing. I'm still waiting for them to make a 28 months later. You know, I me too, because I, I really enjoyed that those two films, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, Romero, he kind of was – he got pissy about uh, – um, 28 weeks later at first and someone pointed out they're not zombies they're infected he's like all right and then he said you know what it's actually pretty good yeah totally because uh, you know it's because it, it, even in the first uh 28 days later you see that they actually gas out like after a while because they're yeah. alive yeah. they're actually people that are infected yeah. by this weird the, virus the, the scene in the tunnel when they're trying to move the taxi cab yeah yeah you know and, th- and then at the very end of this you see someone are starving to death so yeah. dehydrated or whatever and it's like it it's a very cool like new vibe on the quote unquote zombie. You know right, I mean? right. The um the second one, uh I think pound for pound it has one of the the best opening scenes on a zombie film ever. But it's I I think there was either budget problems. There was a couple of scenes where it looks like it was shot with a almost like a cam not a camcorder, like a uh, a second crew is filming, like when they lock all the British guys in the uh, uh, the building and they all get infected. Yeah. That kind of, the quality of that compared to the start. But the opening scene is just insane. That was like definitely, I was on the edge of my seat. I saw that in the movie theater. Yep, and I me was too. just like, man, this is like so tense. And I, I was n- nervous watching yeah. that film, that part of that the film. First, uh, the first time I, I think I walked out of the theater, I'm like, man, like what a bitch, like leaving his wife behind and all that. But if you if you go back and rewatch it a couple of times, he he kills about ten with an iron bar or whatever. Uh, you know you've only got so much physical strength left. She runs one way after some kid that uh, uh, she only just met. He goes to try and save her, and he and he's, he's stuck between you know fear and adrenaline gives in, and he he takes off that way, and they they're stuck the other side of the bedroom or whatever it was, you know. You know, and it's some things too, man. You don't realize how quickly you get tired, like yeah. when you're when you're yep. fighting or yep. when you're doing something like as extreme as that like how just fatigue sets in man yeah after a while you're, you're just but shot it, you know? that that but the first it ends with him just in the boat going oh shit oh shit oh shit because there's an adrenaline dump the, you know what i'm yep, saying absolutely yeah. it's very yeah very realistic yeah. it's very well thought out yeah. i thought that that scene but the third one uh was meant to be basically somewhere in russia the because the kid brings it to mainland europe yeah. and it's basically the last survivors uh you know the you know siberia or whatever hold up as the whole country has uh, fallen type of thing. Uh, so that'd be cool to see. I don't know if they're still the plan, but that's what they were talking about last time. I'm totally into that idea, yeah. for sure. 
Another, another question I always bring up to people yeah. um, is, who who do you prefer in the world of Iron Maiden, Paul Diano or Bruce Dickinson? Uh, it's got to be Bruce. Really? Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, Paul's more the street punk sort of uh, thing. I would have I would have pegged you as a Diano right, guy. Right. Right. Not interesting. Yeah. Huh. But that's uh, I mean I'm the opposite way around with ACDC. If you think about it, uh, Brian Johnson was in the band, you know twice as long as bon scott but I'm, I'm bon scott all the way you know yeah I'm, I'm definitely bon scott all the way man that guy to me is like is like pure like the epitome of like rock and roll right you know guy. he's uh he's actually buried in my hometown and they actually have a statue of him um in the town square and uh it's actually unfortunately though it's life size so it's it's about yay high or whatever you know oh wow yeah okay. which is pretty funny but yeah i think bon scott i mean it's un- you know it's funny that I mean I found out about ACDC when Back in Black hit you know right. in the early '80s when I was a kid and uh, I thought that was like their first album you right. know what I mean right, I'm like right, wow right. this is like great cool stuff but then there's a whole career with this other guy that didn't even they didn't even get that treatment in the '70s yeah. you know what I mean yeah. like they didn't tour the states with him really I don't think they did at least yeah they did they, did. Um, they actually did their first two I believe it was opening for Kiss okay. uh, they did right. it in a station wagon because they're all so small they could all fit in with their <laughs> gear in a station wagon and they would actually pull up to these on normal domes you know, think this is the heyday of Kiss like 77, 78 they're at their peak security would be like who the fuck are you with a support band like no you're not like no we are but the security would not believe them pulling up to every venue because they had this a station wagon with all their gear, you know, like probably Malcolm curled up in the bass drum or whatever. Because wow. they're all they're all tiny guys, you know. Huh. Yeah, that's uh, you know, it's it's unfortunate that they didn't rise to the to the heights they did in, in the eighties, though. You yeah, know what I mean, that's when you know with Brian Johnson is when they really sure put sure. the flag yep. flagpole yep. up, you know. Yep. But oh wow, it's cool. I, you know, I, I'm surprised by the, the Dickinson. But the but the think of uh, I mean a lot of people are talking about you know Judas Priest only got a couple of years left in them Iron Maiden's only got a couple of years left in them Sabbath have done their final tour and all that sort of thing who's going to who's going to replace them and you look at bands like Ghost and the Monomath and uh, you know bands that are drawing like three four thousand right now who's going to be the next stadium metal bands. But those bands, um, I mean, shit. I mean, the Modern Math would have been going like 25 years now or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. they've already, you know, people look at uh, Nurgle, Behemoth or whatever, like, man, like he's yeah, he's doing really well. But yeah, he's been doing it 28 years, you know? True, true. You know, and, and that's the thing. I don't think we're going to see any more like stadium rock right. bands, really. You know, I think that's, those days are over. But Ghost is, I mean, Ghost is drawing. I mean, they are drawing big crowds. I think they just did... Uh, um, uh, uh, Brooklyn, the other day. Oh, the uh, yeah. Was it the Brooklyn uh, metal or what's it called? Brooklyn, Brooklyn uh, Steel. Yeah, no, not Brooklyn Steel. Uh, the Williamsburg. No, no, the uh, the big one. Um, oh, yeah. uh, the Barclays Center. Yes, Barclays. That's it. Yeah. I saw them with uh, there with Iron Maiden, and they they filled the Barclays Center. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. That's but, that's. but you see what I'm saying? They're starting to. I yeah. mean, they, they probably closed off the the upper tiers or whatever. Right. But they're starting to uh, play bigger and bigger venues. You know. Yeah, they're probably one of the only bands, though. I think that they they draw a lot of. I mean, their sound too. It's yeah. like a very it's watered down, catchy yeah. sort of. You know, you can relate to it if you're not into extreme music. But or whatever. but I mean, uh, you know, you talk about Iron Maiden. I mean, in a sense, you could say uh, they write pop songs. I mean, there's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and stuff like that. They're very sing-alongable. 
sing-alongable. Is that even a word? But uh, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like a... No, 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 know, definitely you know, not. Yeah. Well, you know, Priest. Yeah, and these are the bands that are, you know, making these, like, drawing these huge crowds. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, Ghost Falls right into that. Yeah, I guess you could say the same thing about Mastodon's later material, right. too. Right. You know they're going more for this kind of arena yeah. like vibe. Gojira as well, perhaps. Yep. Yeah. Well, actually, Go- I actually like that band quite yeah. a lot, man. Another band with the eight string guitars. I yep. Think. Yep. Yeah. Well, Al, thanks a lot, man. Appreciate yeah, man. you having me to the office. Hell yeah. You know. And um, thanks for listening, everyone. And see you next week. Take it easy, guys. <laughs>